you'd uh, open up your Bibles to John 117. This was in the passage that I preached on last month, but I wanted to cover this topic at a greater length. So John 117 reads, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The devil's in the details. Have you heard that before? Uh, if any of you have seen that old Willy Wonka film, um, the children get into the chocolate factory, right? And the first thing that they have to do is what? They got to sign a contract, right? And it's this theatrical thing. It's big letters, and then it eventually gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's brushed off, you know, you don't have to check the small portions of the contract, right? And then we recognize that the whole framework of the plot is based on this contract that they signed because each child falls off as they break those small little details of the contract, right? To the point where even Charlie Bucket is condemned because he drank the fizzy lifting drink. And praise the Lord, he didn't hit that ceiling fan. Um, But what was it that allowed Charlie Bucket to break the glass ceiling. He repented. He gave the everlasting gobstopper. He, he said he was sorry. He was going to break that contract, and he didn't. He gave the gobstopper. The devil's in the details, right? Uh, here's another example. I was at work the other day, and uh, many of you know I'm a maintenance worker. And over the radio, I hear uh, someone having trouble with a work vehicle. Uh, they're trying to diagnose the problem until someone mentions that they put diesel in the tank. Everyone immediately knew what the problem was. Uh, It's a gasoline, not diesel. Um, And if you've worked on cars at all, you know that's a big no-no. If you put the wrong type of fuel in the engine, you pretty much totaled the car. Uh, And You might ask, if you don't know much about gasoline or diesel, what's the big deal? Uh, Both make cars go, (laughs) right? Um, They both work with the same idea in mind. Fuel in the engine is pressurized and combusted to go. Um, But here's the thing. A gasoline engine was meant to run on gasoline and a diesel engine was meant to run on on diesel. And we won't go further than that. But they both move with somewhat green liquids, unless you know about red diesel. But most are green. Um, One costs more right now, but that's my problem because I drive a diesel truck. Um, And yet, despite these similarities, when you put diesel in gasoline engine, you got a totaled car. Um, if if, If no one ever told you the difference between these two, you'd not be able to know which one is which. If we confuse the two ideas in our text today, law and gospel, we've got a larger problem than just a totaled car. And I'm going to make the case that the gospel, or that the law is not merely, um, was not merely given to those people who were in the Mosaic Covenant, but the law as given to Moses, was a recapitulation, that's a big word, basically retelling of what was given to Adam in the garden, that there was a law given to Adam. Um, They're both completely distinct. The law and Jesus Christ's gospel cannot cohabitate in the Christian heart in the same way. The law and the gospel are not equal partners in your salvation. There is the law, and then infinitely higher above that is the gospel. Infinitely higher than that. Um, I'm afraid that many of us 
like to put the law and the gospel on an even playing field because of how much the Bible talks about we love the law of God and we love the law of God more than anything that this world has to offer because it teaches us about God. But we don't love the law of God because it is the means to us having a relationship with God. It, in fact, condemns us, and that's all it can ever do. Listen here to Martin Luther. We all know Martin Luther. He's a bit smarter than I am. Um, that's why I'm quoting him. But uh, this is a long quote, so, you know, buckle up. Um, the law is the word in which God teaches and tells us what we are to do and not to do, as in the Ten Commandments. The other word of God is not law or commandment, nor does it require anything of us. But after the first word, that of the law has done this work and distressful misery and poverty has been produced in the heart. God comes and offers his lovely living word and promises pledges and obligates himself to give grace and help that we may get out of this misery and that all sins not only be forgiven but also blotted out and that love and delight to fulfill the law may be given besides. The law commands. The gospel provides for those commandments. See, this divine promise of his grace and of his forgiveness of his is properly called gospel. And I say again and yet again that you should never understand gospel to mean anything but the divine promise of his grace and of the forgiveness of sin. For they consider Christ, oh sorry, I lost my, for this is to mean anything but the divine promise of his grace and forgiveness of, of sin. St. Paul's epistles were not understood and cannot be understood by our adversaries even now talking about the Romanists. They do not know what law and gospel really are. So many religious sects, uh, the Roman church, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, our neighbors right across the way, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, they confuse law and gospel. All of them believe that you obey your way into heaven. Gospel is Greek and means good news because in it is proclaimed the saving doctrine of life of the divine promise and grace and the forgiveness of sins are offered. Therefore, works do not belong to the gospel, for it is not laws, but faith alone, because it is nothing whatever but the promise and offer of divine grace. He then who believes the gospel receives grace and the Holy Spirit. Thereby the heart becomes glad and joyful in God and keeps the law gladly and freely without the fear of punishment and without the expectation of reward. For it is sated and satisfied with that grace of God by which the law has been satisfied. The law and the gospel are two separate ways to relate to God. They're very similar in many ways. Uh, they both require righteousness. Both promise life and threaten death. Both command faith, repentance, and obedience. And yet the law is called a ministry of condemnation, and the gospel is called a ministry of righteousness. So what makes the law a ministry of death and the gospel a ministry of righteousness? We have to go back to Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a command. The command was the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For what reason? On the day of it, you shall surely die. Uh, it seems that they had a law 
that was given to them. And implied in that law was the highest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet, what did they do? They ate of it. We all know that. They ate of that fruit. And God cursed them with death. Adam, our first father, was under the law. He was covenanted to God. He was relating to God by way of this performance-based relationship. Don't do this and live. Do this and live. We discussed this in our Sunday school last week, but in case you weren't there, our confession states in section 6.1 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, although God created man upright and perfect, he gave him a righteous law, which, he had, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Yet he did not abide in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them, in eating the forbidden fruit which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. And just to make sure that that's not just the confession saying that, we quoted this on Sunday school as well, Hosea 6, 7 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, um, speaking about the Israelites. So we see that there is an explicit reference to this covenant in Genesis. So the relationship that Adam and the Israelites had with God was kind of a lot like a boss and a workman relationship. Uh, if you come to work every day, perform your duties and tasks up to par, you can keep your employment. You can stay in the covenant uh, and earn your wages. So the way we naturally relate to God, apart from Christ, is like this cosmic exchange system. Read the Bible, do the best you can, and God will give you th good things and eventually reward you with heaven. There are millions upon millions of Christians in this on this planet right now that probably believe something akin to that. And they are woefully trapped under the law. And this is the problem, and we all know this. God is good, and you are not. God is holy, and he's not just one time holy. He is holy, holy, holy. So those angelic, uh, the, the angels that uh, we cannot even comprehend when they come to us and they have to basically tell us don't be afraid even though I'm terrifying they're the ones standing before God every day terrified that by mag orders of magnitude those who terrify us are terrified because of God's holiness but our relationship with God is nothing at all like a boss and an employer first consider Adam when he sinned against God was nothing changed between God and Adam? Was it the same? No. Everything had changed between God and Adam when he sinned. Adam did the one thing that God said don't do, and he did it. And this introduced into the world everything that we hate. This one act against God introduced sadness and misery and brokenness and deceit. It introduced cancer and it introduced disease. It introduced broken marriages and broken homes and broken families. It introduced everything that God did not want for us by this one act of disobedience. This one-time act of defiance shattered any ability for man to earn anything from God. J. 
James, the brother of Jesus, teaches us this in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So our Christian faith is not some days God loves me because I do better and then other days God loves me less because I do worse. On your worst days, Jesus Christ loves you with the same fervency he loves you on your best days. For it is not by works that you have been saved, it is by grace through faith. And our mighty Jehovah was so wise to demonstrate to us from the very beginning the futility and the vanity of trying to relate to God on the basis of performance. So many called by the name of Christ are fallen from grace. This is what it means to fall from from grace. Because you are in the covenant community, but you are trying to relate to God by the law. You must make sure that it is not for you and your household. Um, I I don't know if this is any among us, but there are so many uh, Christians in this world today that if you go to church on Sunday morning, you're saved. There are Christians that believe you can't drink or dance. Or if you don't do those things, you're saved. There are Christians that believe um, in the uh, unbiblical command, thou shalt not be anything but reformed and treat all other Christian denominations as lesser or largely unsaved merely because they don't share the same theological tradition. Brothers and sisters, if your hope is in the title reformed, Christ has become of no effect to you. There is one name and one name alone that a man must be branded with, and it is not reformed, it is not Presbyterian, it is not Anglican, it is not Lutheran, nor is it Baptist or non-denominational. There is one name and one name alone, and that is Jesus Christ. If you boast in your reformedness or anything else, you are still under the law. And children, I want you to listen here, because this is important. If you are not saved, you are under the law. And this is particularly important for children who are raised in church. Because, listen, you can look back at all the times you've gone to church on Sunday morning. All the times you've prayed with your parents. All the times that you've sat under the word. My little brothers and sisters, have you been baptized? No, that means this church has not recognized you as saved. I hope that's real to you. I pray that bothers you. As Pastor Allen said this morning, you are either a friend of Jesus or a friend of Satan. Do you love Jesus? Ask your parents about baptism. May it bother you that you are not baptized, that you are not saved. But baptism doesn't save you. It's just an act. It's just something to represent your introduction into the community. It's a sign of saying, yes, I am for Jesus all the way. Because it represents what happens when you're saved. You go under the water, you're embraced by Jesus, and you rise up, washed. Not from dirt, but for a a clean conscience. So that all those bad things that you do are washed away by the blood of Christ. So ask your parents about baptism if you trust in Jesus for your salvation. And beloved, it also doesn't matter if you've not sinned at all in 99.9% of your life. 
If you've sinned in one point, and I've guaranteed we've all sinned at more than one point in one day, we've probably sinned hundreds of times, you're guilty of the whole law. Consider the way that God gave the Israelites the law. Moses was on the mountain. God was writing the Ten Commandments with his finger. They grew impatient. What's Moses doing up there? I mean, he just rescued us from Egypt. He just came down in a pillar of fire. He just split the ocean in two. He just made the dust turn into gnats, and he had frogs come up from everywhere. And literally, there was such a great blackness that they couldn't see except the light that was in our house. And he went to Pharaoh, and he sent a prophet, and his name was Moses. And this Moses, who God sent us, he went and defeated their magicians. They couldn't even account for what God had done. And this Moses is on that mountain, and he's taking too long. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and give all the gold that we have just gotten from the Egypt, Egyptians that God told them to give us, and we're going to turn it into an idol. We're going to turn it into an image, and we are going to worship it. And you know what the first two commandments of the law are? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and have no other gods before him and you shall have no graven images. And the very first two commandments that he had written down, they were already breaking before it was written. What does that say about the law? It can't do anything. The very first thing it did when it came in contact with the people of God was break because it couldn't work. We don't live according to the law, and yet so many of us live according to the law. Even though they had been given the divine scriptures, these Israelites were blessed with the fathers and the prophets, saw fire rain down from heaven, were witnesses to all of the miracles of God. Not one iota of that was capable of saving anybody. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 7 through 8. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is also a building onto the fact that Adam was under the law because what was the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil? The law brings us the knowledge of good and evil. It was the law in seed form, so to speak. But here's an example of what the law is like. It's like a stop sign, right? The stop sign can signal to you in vibrant red, stop. But it doesn't have the power in itself to get you to stop. It's not like it's got like robot arms there and can stop your car. It just tells you to stop. So the law, apart from the full reality of the gospel, has no ability whatsoever to get you to obey God. Because you and I were born with sin natures which are radically opposed to God. Every sign God gives us in his law, we not only ignore and defy, but we give hearty approval to those who defy as well. We take pleasure in unrighteousness apart from the gospel. It's kind of like there's a kingdom full of people, and for some reason, all these people hate their king and think he's stupid and unfair. Are those people going to do anything that the king commands? No, except under threat of punishment. And that's all that motivated the Israelites to do anything for God. 
The law commanded love to God but gave no provision. The gospel gives provision for love to God and vindicates the truth contained in the law. So the law commands us how we ought to live, and living according to this law is believing that you can earn the favor of God by doing his commands. However, since God is perfectly just, any infraction of his law deserves eternal justice. And since you are a finite being, there is nothing, no, not one thing in all of creation that the brightest mind of all mankind could ever conjure up that would earn one single thing from God. You cannot ever get God to smile at you by trying hard. Under the law, no one is saved. Despite the insufficiency of the law, even to the most mature among us, it is an ever-enticing seductress. Bearing the image of God makes us radically desperate to appear righteous to the people in our lives. And that's all the law can do is make you appear righteous. What did he call the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. It provides no actual righteousness at all because the beginning of righteousness comes from a humble and contrite heart. And what does the law immediately presume? I can do this. I'm capable of doing what God tells me to do. No, you're not. I mean, from both conceptions of Adam in the garden and the Israelites before God in the wilderness, they've already broken the law from the outset. Two Sundays ago, Jeff helped me uh, change my alternator. We did a lot of diagnostic work. Uh, we put the voltmeter on the batteries, and we determined the problem was the alternator. So we had to go get a new one. We switched it out, uh, and the batteries were still reading lower than they should have. Well, we left after a little while, a bit confused, uh, but praise God for Jeff, because he did a little re research and learned that uh, most of the alternators that come from the shop come broken for my truck, and you have to go through two or three before you get a good one. Um, so we had to get another one and switch it out. But you see, the, the Israelites never did that diagnostic work. They never tested to see if the law works for them. Um, God keeps giving these promises to his people about a coming redeemer. Why? Because the law was not able to get them to relate to God in a way that was saving or powerful or sanctifying. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And here we see in this text that the law is under Moses and grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And these are two separate things. Fundamentally, the law compared to the gospel, is like a lit match next to an exploding star. It's the difference between a picture of food on a menu and the sizzling plate of fajitas coming from the kitchen. It's the difference between watching a romance on television and falling in love. It's the difference between reading a novel and going on an actual adventure. The law in comparison with the gospel is the difference between life and death. And Alan mentioned this morning, you can be against abortion and transgender, transgenderism and be completely opposed to the gay lifestyle and not have Christ in your heart at all. But you cannot believe the gospel and miss the importance about speaking about these issues. The law commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why we should have concern for our preborn neighbors but it only allows us to love them as if they were our neighbor. 
If we believe what our confession says about elect infants, the law commands us to love those babies. The gospel teaches us that many, if not all, of those babies are elect. They're Christians. They're our camp. So far as they share in the blood of the new covenant, we have a two-fold prong into caring about them because we're, in, we're supposed to do good unto all, but especially unto the household of faith. Or some desire to be allied with some political party because Jesus, or, or because Jesus Christ loves those babies. Listen, it doesn't matter if you ally with a political party. You need to understand that the Bible teaches you not only according to the law, but to the gospel as we understand that those children could be saved. Those are our little brothers and sisters. And we ought to love them with a great Christian fervency. What the law could not do because of the weakness of the flesh, because you could only love them as if they were your neighbors. God has shown us they are, and they are ours. And Jesus Christ did this for us on the cross. Now, I only have a page and a half left, just so you know. So, Now that we've outlined the law, we have to outline the gospel. And this is by far the more important issue, but I think with the law in our mind, we will just cling to the gospel. If the, go- if the law says do, the gospel says done, done, finished. It is finished. It has been accomplished and applied. The law promised life if you obey. The gospel promises life because Jesus obeyed. The law condemns you because of your disobedience. The gospel saves you because of the righteousness of Christ. The law tells you what God wants from you. The gospel gives you the willingness and strength to do what God wants and then provides grace for you when you fail still. The law can only kill. The gospel gives life. You see, so many of us are willing to run that stop sign if we know we won't get caught. But what's a surefire way to know that someone won't run a stop sign? There's a cop right there, right? I grew up with the saying, no cop, no stop. That's not a good thing, but um, if there's a cop there, you stop. Um, But you know what else will get you to stop? If someone you highly respect and love is with you in the car. That if Jesus Christ is in your heart, you are not going to disobey that stop sign. You're not going to disobey the law of God. And I, you know, how many of you get really nervous when a police officer pulls you over i mean even if you know you didn't do anything wrong you know the cop just lights his lights up behind you and you're what's going on you know Um, i think we've all been there at some point what makes them so terrifying police officers have all the authority in that engagement Um, especially if you don't know your rights know your rights um But they can identify you, detain you, ask you to leave your vehicle, search your vehicle, arrest you. Um, They can almost do anything they want. Um, And worse cops are better than better cops, but they have a lot of authority. Um, If you uh, were here for Pastor Chris's sermon on Psalm 119, you know God possesses all authority. And that authority in itself is reason enough for you to obey him. But that he also possesses all goodness. And that goodness in itself is enough for you to obey him. You do not want to be pulled over by God, so to speak. Um, He is simultaneously judge, jury, attorney, and executioner. 
Therefore, he could condemn you for all the times you broke his law, and yet, when you put your faith in him for what he said, he forgives you. He loves you. He adopts you. He puts his spirit within you. He transforms you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of Satan, to the kingdom of his son. He transforms you from a diabolical sinner who is bent on only evil ever to one who aims for his highest glory. Why? How? He has all authority and is perfectly good, and he demonstrates that with what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He left eternal bliss and happiness and took unto himself human flesh. He who had every right to pride because of his excellence humbled himself. He who exists in all time and space limited himself to some degree by time and space. He who created water thirsted. He who created food hungered. He who possessed eternal life and energy needed to rest and sleep. He who deserves all acknowledgement, praise, and worship was unacknowledged and unreceived. Although he was subject to want as a man, he remained faithful to his father in perfect obedience for his father's glory and for your eternal good. On your behalf, he obeyed. Think about that. That in itself is enough of eternal worship. There has not been one day where you've not sinned many times in a day. Jesus did not sin once. Not one time. Hallelujah. How lovely is this God who performs the law on your behalf. Despite this wonderful, excellent Savior and what he did, how did we count him? How often do we count him? Even as believers, we should have Christ in our thoughts every second of every day, and we forget him. We deemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, and we did not recognize him at all. What did Alan teach us this morning? Those who had every opportunity to know who he was thought he was Satan. They were so blind to the power of God, they identified Yahweh in the flesh as his enemy. They hated the one who would save us from our sins. He went through the worst imaginable tragedy. One of his closest friends betrayed him with a kiss. Peter denied him three times. The people who were called by his name shouted, Crucify him! After he had already been flogged by the world, lifted up on a tree, cursed and forsaken by his God. The light of God was for a time seen as snuffed out and extinguished. And yet on a glorious day, he rose from the grave, vindicating his father, making every single promise of God, yes and amen for you. If you look to the cross, see your all and all in him. There is not one blessing that has not been allocated to your account in Christ. That's the gospel. What you could not do, Jesus Christ did. You couldn't live for God let alone die for him, and raise up from the grave after three days. That's what the law required. You should have seen those sacrifices and not saw that as a metaphorical death on your behalf. You should have saw that and said, oh, to fulfill the law, I need to die. Jesus did it. It was by the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and what he has done on your behalf that saves you. And that's the distinction between the law and the gospel. Law is do this and live. Gospel is Christ has done this, so live. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that there would not be one among us who does not know your gospel. That all would have their faith in you and trust in you and know that 
There isn't, a one day, there isn't one day they aren't loved by you if they have put their faith and hope and trust in you. God, I pray that you would shine a great light on this congregation, that those who don't know you would become plain so that we may be able to speak to them in a manner they need, that we may evangelize them. And those who know you, Lord, I pray that they would just cherish you and adore you and worship you and their highest act of living, being uh, directed towards you, God. And I pray that uh, if there was any words that I spoke this evening that were of my own, you would have them be forgotten forever, and I pray that words that are of you would be remembered and these people would abide in them. We thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.